Tonight, let's look at Judges chapter 7. You'd recall that uh, last week we looked at Judges chapter 6, and Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8 really comprise a, a period in the history of the judges, uh, these deliverers, these saviors, if you will, lowercase s, uh, that the children of Israel had. And you remember the cycle that the children of Israel got into. They, because of their disobedience, they found themselves in a place of whenever they were disobedient, God would allow a neighboring uh, country or a neighboring army to come and uh, oppress them or to put them into some kind of bondage. And then the children of Israel would cry out and God would hear their prayers and God would raise up a deliverer. He would raise up somebody uh, to, uh, to deliver them from those oppressors. And uh, tonight we're going to be looking at the, this fourth period. There's seven periods that have been really dissected uh, in, the, in, the, in the time of the judges. It's a time of about 400, 450 years roughly in that area, and it's really been divided up into seven periods. We're looking again at the fourth period. It's really the life of Gideon. And before we get into chapter 7, let's just look at uh, briefly just what happened in chapter 6. We know that the Midianites had been keeping the children of Israel and it says right there in the first verse of chapter 6, The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And so here they were in this, um, in this place of, of God chastening them. And uh, in the hand of Midian, it says, prevailed against Israel. And uh, we know that uh, they came up during the time of harvest, and they would steal all of their, all of their food and destroy it. And, and, and so the Israelites were impoverished. They were struggling against this huge invading army, the Amalekites, the Midianites, and those from the east. And we see that the Lord raised up a young man by the name of Gideon. And Gideon, it's interesting, his father was actually a, a, an idol worshiper. And for whatever reason, in the town... It seems that this altar of Baal was something that uh, Joash, Gideon's father, had erected, and the whole town was there evidently to worship because it was a great altar. And and it's interesting that as the Lord, uh, we know that Gideon was going to be this next deliverer, and and I love how the Lord uses the most um, um, the people that most people wouldn't think God could use, and and Gideon was one of those people, and. And certainly, you know, he was, he was young, he, was, he belonged to a family that uh, was the center of idolatrous worship at that time there in their town. And before the Lord could use Gideon to go outside of his home and be a deliverer uh, for the children of Israel from the Amalekites and the Midianites, God had first to work on his own heart at home. And so we see that God was using Gideon first to tear down his father's altar and to come clean with that and to renounce it and, and to take all of the uh, repercussions of that. You remember the men of the city wanted to kill him and Joash, Gideon's father, rose up and says, Who are you going to plead? Are you going to plead for Baal? Are you going to stick up for this God that we worship? And it's, it's really interesting here that Joash wasn't going to allow his son to be killed, but rather... He was uh, going to stick up for him. And as a result of his boldness, uh, his father, Joash, renamed his name and called him that day Jerubabel, 
which means let God or let Baal plead for himself, or let Baal plead is the actual name. And so uh, Gideon uh, was known for this, and God was going to use him to throw off the yoke of the Midianites. And you remember that Gideon's faith and his theology really wasn't very mature. Gideon was still, uh, and certainly because of the idolatry, how can you know uh, a loving God and to know who God is when you're serving a false god? And and for how many years this was going on, we you know we don't know for sure, but. It has an effect on a person, and when a person is involved in idolatry, the, the, the truth is, um, is being ignored, and, and that's really what his family did. But there came a point when you know, God just was trying to encourage Gideon, and the thing I like about what we're going to read tonight, in fact, uh, Judges 6, 7, and 8, is we're going to see God just working with Gideon, this young man who was still very young and very um, unsure in his faith in God. He didn't know God really well, and he certainly didn't understand what was happening. He didn't understand that the reason that the Midianites and the Amalekites were coming against them was because of their sin. And you can see how God would first have to destroy this pagan altar that was at his father's house, because that is the very thing that, was, that, that caused the judgment to come upon them. And so God first had to deal with that, and then God could deal with the outside Amalekites. And he could use Gideon powerfully, but he first had to get things right at home. And, I, and there, there's a, a lesson in there for all of us, too. Before God can use us, you know, we can, we can claim to be something for God or do something for God, but if our hearts aren't right and we're not doing those things at home, if we're, if we're uh, doing evil things at home, how can God? How can we expect God to use us to do greater things? And so Gideon was learning this. He was learning that these little steps that he would make, and all these little baby steps of faith that God was going to lead him through, and, and you can see him growing in it because he keeps asking the Lord for, for, um, for, for understanding. And, and Lord, if this is really you, then would you please do this? And you know, God knows the heart of every person, and some people need that urging. Some people need that nudge. Uh, in faith and to, and to encourage. And, and, and the thing I love about the Lord is that He knows. He knows what we need. And He knows whether we're playing games with Him or whether our questions that we're asking and the things that we're requiring of God, whether they're real genuine or not, or whether we're just wasting time. And I think you know what I mean by that. We can, we can have excuses, but in our heart, there's really, it's just cold and indifferent. But when we have an honest, sincere desire, God is more than able and more than willing to meet with us uh, to help us and, and further us along in our faith. He's, you know, uh, uh, he's not going to uh, break you down when you're at your lowest point. He, if he sees that little mustard seed of faith, he will, he will encourage it. He will encourage it to grow. You know, uh, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he won't quench. Isn't that what the prophets tell us? And so. That's the way the Lord is with Gideon. That's the way he is with us too. And he hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And we all can attest to God's faithfulness in our own lives. And so let's look at chapter 7. So it says, Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and they encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. And so this place, this well of Herod, 
um, is actually a place where God tested the men of Manasseh, the men of the Abiezrites. The, these are the people that belong to the tribe of Manasseh that Gideon was a part of. We're going to learn in just a few moments that this is the place where God tested them, and that's why they call it the Well of Herod, because Herod is, has nothing to do with Herod, like you and I would think. When we think when we say Herod or Herod, we think of King Herod in the time of Jesus. But this is hundreds of years, hundreds of years prior to any of that. And so the, the, the word Herod in, in Hebrew actually literally means trembling or astonishment or fear. And it was uh, perhaps named because of what we're about to read, because it was at this very place that God would test the army of Gideon's and he would winnow, he would basically do a reduction in his army, and God would accomplish a lot with just a very few men so that God could receive the glory for it. And so, and this spring, this, uh, this well of Herod is actually there to this day. A few weeks ago, probably three weeks, uh, uh, almost a month ago, I guess now, over a month, uh, we were in Israel and we visited this very spot and they know that this is the spot and you can see right there at the mount at the very base of Mount Gilboa there is a spring there's a little in uh, a cave kind of uh, inside the mountain and it's not it doesn't go in very far but out of that is a spring you can actually see it to this day the water coming up from there and it's been that way going all the way back over 3000 years ago and this stream this is called the the well of Herod and it, it goes uh, from the spring, it comes out of there, and it goes toward the east, going into the Jordan Valley, into the Jordan River, and that's where it flows out, certainly, uh, down into the Dead Sea. And so this is the place where we are at here in the story. And notice here that it says, The Lord said to Gideon, verse 2, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. And there is something interesting about the human heart that when God um, says He's going to do something and He's going to do it through us, uh, He doesn't need all the fancy trimmings. He doesn't need somebody who is well-educated. He doesn't even need to see use somebody who's good-looking or talented or gifted or has a lot of money. In fact, some of those things are more of a liability to God than, uh, than not. And so God loves to choose the base things. He loves to choose the small things, the things that are insignificant to the world. He likes to use those things to confound the wise and to, and to, and to do wonderful things through something simple that nobody else wants. And, and that is a secret that we see throughout all the Bible. All the great things that God did, it wasn't because might makes right. It wasn't because of a big army. God did some of the most awesome things uh, by just a few. And, and most of them, most of these heroes of the Bible, they were just like us. They're no different. They, would, they, were, they were trembling inside when they were going through it. You know, it's easy to read these events in the Bible and to think, well, you know, I could do that or whatever. But we all know that there are certain things in, in life that happen, and when they do happen, they, they take us unawares. They, they take us off guard, and we find ourselves in a real difficult situation. We discovered that a couple days ago. Pastor David and I were here at the church, and um, uh, a company came in to do some work on some piping, and something happened. Something went horribly wrong. 
and one of the sprinkler heads um, in one of our tenants' spaces, uh, it, it basically came off, and uh, it's a long story, but the water was coming out of this, uh, this uh, sprinkler head, and I'm looking above me, looking at one in my office, looking at a few of them actually, hoping they stay there, but the water was coming down at such a great rate, it, it was literally hundreds and hundreds of gallons of water that flooded uh, a part of our tenant's space. And this poor gentleman was, was running around, and you could see the fear and the anxiety on his face. And Pastor David and I, we just had to stop and pray. And we did a couple times. And, 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 the, and he came back later, and he was very thankful for that. He knew that we were praying for him. And uh, we've all had days like that where you walk into work and things just, everything explodes and everything is on fire and it's the worst day of your life. You're just like, you just want to quit. And, and, and these are the kind of things that, that, that God loves to use small people and he uses us all. And, and sometimes he allows these calamities to happen to us when it's just us by ourselves. And those are the most harrowing things in our life, things that we'll never forget. But the Lord, is, the Lord said to Gideon, and can you imagine what Gideon was thinking? He's got this 32,000-man army, and God says, uh, let me see, how many are the Malachites? Are the Malachites the Midianites? 135,000, uh, and you've got 32,000. I would say that's uh, still not a good thing for Israel, but God is looking at it and saying, I don't know that I can do it with that many. And see, God knows our hearts because Israel, uh, even today, they're very proud of their, their intelligence. They're very proud of their technology, and, and that's okay. You know, they, 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 they have a lot going on, and, and they have learned a great deal. But um, God doesn't need all of that, and he certainly didn't need 32,000 um, men to... He didn't need 32,000 men to go against uh, even that many Amalekites. But I want to show you something in, in Psalm 33, and let me just read it to you. There will be other passages that we're going to go to together, but let me just read to you Psalm 33, beginning in verse 12. It says this, and I love this, and this is applicable to us today as well. It says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. In other words, blessed is the nation whose God is Jehovah. And, and, and blessed is the nation. Hopefully America is such a nation that... Uh, whose God is Jehovah, who, whose God is Jesus Christ. I pray that that's the thing, because if it isn't, we're in a lot of trouble. And so it goes on, it says, The people he has chosen as his own inheritance. And the Lord looks down from heaven, verse 13, and he sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts alike, or individually. And he considers all their works. Now here it is, verse 16. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord, uh, I'm sorry, a mighty man is not delivered by great strength. Verse 17. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in Him because we have trusted in His holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. But the, 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 the real um, crux of the matter here in this verse is no king is saved 
by a multitude of an army, nor horses, nor chariots, no nuclear bombs, no fancy jets. Uh, all these things are fine and good, but no king is saved by the multitude of an army because God has a way of changing the tide and turning the tables on anyone at any given time, regardless of their preparation, regardless of how well prepared they are for battle. And so here we are with Gideon. You know, God tells him, the people who are with you are too many. And if I were Gideon, I'd be like, oh, oh Lord, we could sp- probably spare 10. Is that what you want? Uh, 10, maybe 10 people? <laughs> Can we subtract it by 10? Uh, and the Lord goes, no, I got quite a bit more I want to take away, Gideon. But notice, uh, go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're going to look at just the first six verses of 1 Samuel chapter 14. Verse 1, and this is a time during the time of Saul's reign, the, the Israel's first king, as you recall, and Jonathan was his son. And the Philistines at the time were really creating a problem for Saul. And in fact, the Philistines were a thorn in the side of Israel uh, through David's reign, uh, uh, through most of it. And uh, we're going to see Jonathan his son, who was really a great and wonderful man. The Bible says that he and David had such a friendship and their love for each other was so great because they had a real brotherly love. It was a really strong bond between these two guys. But notice in verse 1 what it says uh, of Jonathan. It says, Now it happened on the day that Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side, But he did not tell his father. So here Jonathan is doing this unbeknownst to his father, who is the king. And and the reason I'm bringing this passage up is I, I want you to see the faith of Jonathan. And we see that God can do a lot through someone very little in their own sight. And so verse 2 it says, Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gabeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. And Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, but the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So he's kind of doing this with his armor bear, kind of on the down low, kind of stealth. And so between the passes, between these passes, these mountains, by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sena. And the front of one faced northward, opposite Michmash, and the other southward, opposite Gabeah. But notice what it says in verse 6. Then Jonathan said to the young man who is his armor-bearer, Come, let us go to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. And notice just the zeal and the faith of this young man. Would to God that Saul had that kind of faith. I sometimes wonder if Jonathan, his son, ought to have been the king instead of him. Uh, But Jonathan realized that he uh, and this armor bearer, they could could take these guys on. And uh, it says in verse 14 of that same chapter, says, This first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half of an acre of a land. So if you picture a half of an acre of land and Jonathan and his armor bearer going against 20 men who are interspersed throughout that half of an acre of land, that's basically what it was. But it was two against 20, or actually, yeah. And so 
uh, those odds aren't really good. But um, uh, Jonathan had this faith in God, and God answered him and gave him the strength and the wherewithal to overcome these Philistines. Turn with me just a few chapters uh, to your right and go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And this is an event that we all know very well. It was the the fight between David and Goliath. So open up to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to look at verse 41. And you recall that uh, the Philistine giant Goliath came out into the valley of Elah and he's uh, disdaining David. He's looking, he's a giant man. He's probably over nine feet tall. This man is a seasoned war veteran and out comes this good looking, he probably looks like John Bon Jovi and he's coming out and he's, he's coming out with, he's just this little guy, little teenager. He doesn't have any armor on. He's got nothing but a sling and some stones and his staff in his hand. And he comes out against Goliath. And so verse 41, we'll pick up right there. It says, So the Philistine came, and he began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the, the Philistine look, looked about David and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking, and looked like John Bon Jovi. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. So he's not only cursing David, but he's also cursing the God of David, Jehovah. And that's not a really good thing to do. Um, you, you'll notice that it doesn't turn out very well for him. So uh, it says, And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but guess what? I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. Thank you very much. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And notice verse 47. Then all the assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give it into our hands. Notice David is coming out, and he, he's got nothing but a sling. I mean, think of it. I mean, being in that valley of Elah and seeing the way the land is laid out is really marvelous because you see how they were all staged and how and what it might have looked like. And this young guy comes out with a sling and stones, five smooth stones. And he, he winds up, and I love what it says in the next verse. It says that David hurried and he ran toward the giant. That kind of faith and that kind of zeal is remarkable. And, and that's the kind of faith that God was saying, you know what, David, you could have tripped and fell on your face and knocked yourself out, and I would still deliver you from Goliath. You know, that's the kind of faith that God finds irresistible, you know, because David, as this guy, is just uh, uh, defying God and defying David, which David didn't see himself to be anything of any worth anyway, but he defied God. And David had spent years out in the... Um, out in the shepherd's fields, you know, and, and he would look up at the stars and he had a great communion with God. And David would not take that defying of God any longer. And he runs and he kills the giant. And he does exactly what he said he was going to do. But notice, 
that this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And we're going to see tonight in Gideon in this chapter that the battle does belong to the Lord, and the Lord doesn't need sword and spear. And you'll see, actually, in this battle, there really wasn't a battle. Uh, the men of the Midianites and the Amalekites, they end up turning on themselves and killing each other, and then they start running toward the Jordan River to the east, and then the Israelites follow them, and they, they, they take care of them then. But there's really no uh, uh, battle where they come together. The, the, the army ends up running for their lives. But I love what it says in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. This is a wonderful verse to put to memory if you haven't already. And it's um, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. There's, might doesn't make right, and it doesn't matter how much you've got, but it's by God's spirit. And God's spirit was with Gideon, and God was going to deliver Gideon into, uh, or I'm sorry, he was going to deliver the Midianites and the Amalekites into the hand of Midian, and it would be God's battle. God's battle. Remember that it is God's battle, folks, because... As we look around in our world, sometimes we can, we can get our kingdoms confused. And we have to be careful. We have to remember who, who it is that we're serving. We don't serve anything but Jesus Christ. And we serve the Lord. We serve the Lord. In Romans 8, chapter 31, it says this. If God is for us, Paul says to the Romans, who can be against us? And that's a wonderful verse to memorize as well. Because... Uh, God is, is faithful, and if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is, there's no one. There's no one. In, in Numbers chapter 14, you recall, again, these are just some examples from the Old Testament. Right before the children of Israel were going into the Promised Land, Moses was still alive at this time in Numbers chapter 14, but it was when they brought... The, uh, the, the 12 spies went into the, the land of Canaan. And remember, all of them returned a bad report except Caleb and Joshua. And um, when, the, when the people began to grow fearful and lack in faith and not trust God and, and what He told them to do because of this, uh, these, uh, bad, um, the, the bad witness, really, of 10 of these men, the people were upset, and they were very fearful, and they, they were ready to, to stone uh, Joshua and Caleb for even suggesting that they go through with this plan. And Joshua and Caleb respond to their unbelief in Numbers chapter 14, beginning in verse 6, and let me read it to you. It says, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes because of the, the grief of the unbelief of the children of Israel. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceeding good land. And that's exactly what the Lord told them. It would be a land uh, uh, filled with uh, 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 what, what it, milk and honey. That's right. <laughs> milk and honey. That's a good combination. And so God told them that that's what it was. And he says in verse 8, If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. <laughs> there we go. Only do not rebel against the Lord, he says, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. In other words, we're going to consume them, and their protection has departed from them. And notice, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. The Lord is with us. And see, that's one thing we have to remember. As Gideon is learning, God is with us. God plus you 
or you plus God is overwhelming odds against any enemy, against any obstacle. If it's just me, I'm going to be consumed and it's going to be over very quickly. But you plus God equals success. And whatever that success means, it means whatever God's will is, that's what success is. With you plus God, whatever His will is, is success. And in fact, and that's why I love one of the names of Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He's never left us. He said he would never leave us nor forsake us, even to the end of the age, which we are now. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, what does it say? 1 John 4, verse 4 says, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We know that the spirit of Antichrist is in the world, and we, the one who dwells in us, is greater than he that is in the world. And you recall also in 2 Kings chapter 6 when Elisha and his servant, they were outnumbered by the host that was coming against them. And remember, Elisha said to, and prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, open the eyes of my servant that he may see that the host, the heavenly host, that you are with us and that your host way outnumbers the enemy that's surrounding us. And that's what the Lord did. He opened his eyes and saw that behind and around the camp, around the enemy that was surrounding Elisha and his servant was this heavenly army. And all of a sudden, it looked like a slaughter. And you recall that the Lord gave Elisha the command to strike these guys with blindness. And and it was actually a good thing. They had a peace between them and Assyria, or Syria at that time as a result. But let's go on. So God is with us. He is always with us. He's never left. He's never left you. And there are times when you may feel like God has left you. And a lot of times our emotions, and you know our emotions are a tricky thing because so often Christians we are led by our emotions rather than led by the Spirit of God. And the devil knows our frame as well. He, he doesn't know us like God knows us, but he knows enough about human flesh. He knows how to manipulate that flesh to get us off the path. And God is always wanting us to be on the path. And so our emotions sometimes, if we're not careful, that's why we have to rule over those things and not allow our emotions to, to get us off the path. Because they do, and they often do. Perhaps you Today, maybe you flew off the handle. Maybe you got angry about something. Maybe you yelled at your kids. Maybe you yelled at your spouse uh, because you were frustrated. And isn't everybody frustrated right now? Isn't isn't there a lot of tension uh, in so many things? And you know, um, and so give your heart to the Lord and and, and trust Him and and let Him work on those things that are deep in our hearts. So notice at the end of verse two, it says that um, the people who are with you are too many. God says to Gideon, and, uh, and I have to, uh, there's too many of them, lest Israel claim glory for itself, saying, my own hand has saved me. Again, it's, it's humanism. I can do this, and, and I'm going to accomplish this work in my own flesh. And you see that in the, in the corporate world. You see that in the world today. But notice what it says in Isaiah. You don't have to go there, but let me just read it to you. It's a very short passage, Isaiah 42, verse 8. God says, I am the Lord, and that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. But I love that. His glory he will not give to another. 
And so God is not going to be glorified through Gideon's army. God is going to be glorified in, in a very small number of Gideon's army. And they're going to know for sure that they had nothing to do with it. But if God wasn't for them, they would be a complete disaster. They would be consumed. And in, in Isaiah 48, 2, verse 10, it says this, And God is speaking concerning Israel. He says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. And hasn't, haven't the Israelites been tested in the furnace of affliction all throughout their, from their, from their very beginning, from the, their inception, from their conception, from the very beginning, when they started as a nation, they've been tested in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, God says, my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned and I will not give my glory to another? I will not give my glory to another. And so God has to reduce the size of, of the army. It says in verse 3, and, and what we're going to see here in, in verse 3 is test one of two. There's going to be two tests that God is going to do, and this is the first one. It says, Now therefore, God tells them, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And this may be Mount Gilboa because Mount Gilead is actually on the other side. So this may have been a scribal error perhaps because Mount Gilead is actually on the other side where the enemy, behind the enemy that's coming toward them um, or in that area across the Jordan on the east side anyway. But it says, And, uh, and 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And can you imagine seeing Gideon's face as... Um, you know, this huge chunk of his army is walking away. And uh, it's true that uh, Warren Wiersbe said this, uh, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. And, and that is a very good saying because God was going to test the faith of not only Gideon but the Israelites themselves so that they would know that it's not by might nor by power but by God's Spirit He's going to do this thing. And so there were a total of 32,000 men and after this first test, uh, 10,000 remain. That's a 31 point, that's 31 and a quarter percent reduction in force. <laughs> that, that's like a, uh, that's a Fortune 500 company's uh, nightmare. Or maybe for their bottom line, it would be actually be a good thing to not have 30, you know, to lose that many people. But 31 and a quarter percent of Gideon's army were the only ones that remained out of 32,000. And so the Lord commanded a similar thing. Uh, going back in Deuteronomy, and if you could just turn with me to chapter 20 in Deuteronomy, this kind of idea God had established way uh, before this, and, and we'll see it. Because remember what the Lord says, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once uh, from here. And so we see in Deuteronomy chapter 20, years before this battle that we're looking at tonight, uh, God spoke to the children of Israel. Um, we're just going to look at the first nine verses. It says, When you go to battle, this is Deuteronomy 20, verse 1, When you go out to battle against your enemies and you see horses and chariots. So God is encouraging them in things that they haven't even experienced yet. Experienced yet. And that, again, that's what a good shepherd does. Before it happens, he tells them in advance. That is really good stuff when you can get an advance notice on what's coming. He says, when you go out to battle, not if, but when, you go out to battle against your enemies and you see horses and you see chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you. 
who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And so it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Isn't that what God wants to do? He wants to save his people. Not only the children of Israel, but he wants to save you. He wants to save you and me. And hopefully he's got all of us. But if there's anyone here that God doesn't have a hold of, uh, consider that tonight. You know, you, you need Jesus. I need Jesus still, even as a believer. I need him every single day, but you do too. But notice what happens in verse 5. It says, Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, What man is there uh, who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go. And return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicates his house. Also, what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man eats of it. And what man is there who is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man marry her. That'd be a bad day. <laughs> That'd be a bad day. Verse 8, here it is. The officer shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful? What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. And, and so, uh, isn't that true that whenever there is one person in a group of people, and we saw this when the children of Israel, before they crossed over, after the, the, the spies had come back from the promised land. It was ten people who turned the whole country, the whole, the whole group of the Israelites, turned them against God's plan of going in and possessing the land. It, it took ten. And there was only two men who were faithful, Joshua and Caleb. So one, you know, uh, one person, even one person out of a hundred, can really uh, be a sour apple amongst the amongst the the bounty and so and that tends to spread it very rarely stays just one because all it takes is one to say i don't really think god can do this and all of a sudden you got two people looking at each other going you know i'm not really sure he can either you know we're outgunned here we're the odds are really against us i don't think god can do this i'm not up for this and then the, another person hears and so it goes and so it goes and pretty soon this this unbelief has infected everybody and so it's better for God to winnow away lord you know those who are fearful right from the get go to make sure that those who are left are not fearful that they're ready to go out and fight and they're ready to go out and battle and then in verse 4 we see the second test let's look at it, it says but the lord said to gideon the people are still too many so now with this 31 and a quarter percent reduction in his army the lord said to gideon the people are still too many uh, i got 10,000 now so bring them down to the water and um you don't know this, but let me just describe a scene to you. At the bottom of Mount Gilboa, there's that spring that I was telling you about. It's like a little cave. It goes in about maybe 30 or 40 feet, and then that's where the water gushes out, and that's where this is happening. We actually were, again, at that site. But right on the top of that mountain, Mount Gilboa, up, in that, up above that spring area is where they would encamp. And so now they're coming down there, and God is going to test them the second time. He's going to take this 10,000 man army and he's going to winnow it even further so the people are still too many the lord says bring them down to the water and i will test them there for you there then it shall be that of whom i say to you this one shall go with you the same shall go with you and of whom whomever i say to you this one shall not go with you the same shall not go so he brought the people down to the water 
And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. And likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees and they just stuck their head in the water like a dog and they licked with the water just like a dog would lick, right? And so you can, you, when we were there, we, we almost took pictures of ourselves when we were in Israel at this very spot. I almost got down on my hands and knees and like a dog, a thirsty dog, licked the water. But I thought, you know, is that really how I want to be seen? I'd rather be the guy who gets down on his knees and puts the water up, you know. But um, So anyway, so the number uh, of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink the water. And notice, then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand and let all the other people go, every man to his place. So can you imagine your own heart if you were in this place. You know, here you are, Gideon, you have this 32,000-man army. It's been winnowed down 31 and a quarter percent. Now you got 10 guys. Now the Lord does this second test. Now there's 300 men left, and that is uh, actually less than a quarter. It's actually 0.94% of his original force is now the only thing that's left. So less than 1% is going to get this job done. And it's interesting that God can do, again, we know this, but He can do a lot with very little. God doesn't need a big church. He doesn't need a mega church to get His, his, vo his voice, His message out. Sometimes it's the small churches that are actually doing the work and actually being more effective. And that doesn't mean that the, uh, the mega church is bad. It just means they need, to get on, they need to get with the program, right? They need to get in the Lord's will and not their own. And that's a challenge for every church, right? And so, but God can do a lot with very little. I mean, after all, he replenished and repopulated the earth with how many people? With eight people. He destroyed the, the former earth, or, not, or the former face of the earth anyway, in, in the flood of Noah there in Genesis 6 and 7. And, uh, and God can also do uh, small things. He can do great things, actually, with little things. We see that in Matthew's gospel when Jesus fed the 5,000. And the 6,000 with just five loaves and a couple of fish. We know how he multiplied that miraculously to feed all these people who were out there in the desert place and they needed to be fed. God can do that. He can do that. And it's important that we walk in faith. That we walk, we do, we're willing to do the small things. Don't be afraid to do the small things. Be faithful in the small things and God will give you bigger things. In fact, the one a gentleman was quoted, make every occasion a great occasion, for you can never tell when somebody may be taking your measure for a larger place. And the idea is that God sees what nobody else sees. What do you do when no one else is looking? Are you willing, if somebody was looking, are you going to pick up that, that piece of trash, you know, uh, uh, you know outside, your, uh, outside your neighbor's house? Maybe there's a... Um, a piece of trash in your neighbor's lawn. You know, if your neighbor's out watering the grass and he sees you picking it up, and you're like, well, if, if he wasn't there, I'd just continue to walk. You know, that, that's the kind of stuff. It's, it's silly, but little things like that are important because God sees what you do in secret, and then what does he do? He rewards you openly, and he will give you greater and greater things if you're faithful in just a little 
faithful in just a little. So notice in verse 8 in our text tonight, it says, So the people, they took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent them sent away all the rest of Israel. So now you got 300 guys. And so every man to his tent, and they retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So there's 135,000 warriors out in the, in the valley there. And now he's got 300 men. He's got 300 men. These trumpets that they're using is really nothing more than a shofar. In fact, I've got one here. Uh, this is what a shofar looks like. This is what they would use. And you can see this. It's just a ram's horn. And what they would do, I'm not going to do this, but you would blow in this end and, and make a noise. And it would be uh, certain things, uh, certain ways that you would do that would mean something to the armies around. One, one sound may mean let's march. One sound, another sound may mean to retreat. Another sound may need, you know, let's go to Bill Grace for hamburgers. Uh, I don't know, but the, these, uh, this is what it was. It, these trumpets, they were shofars. That's actually what it means in the Hebrew. So they used these. And where did they get these 300 um, shofars? The trumpets and the pitchers, they were probably obtained from the rest of the folks that weren't um, uh, going out to battle with them. It's very likely that every captain over 50 or over 100, they had a trumpet for communication. They had a shofar to communicate. And we know that that's not a far-fetched idea because Exodus tells us uh, in, in chapter 18, verse 21, uh, remember uh, Jethro's advice to Moses. He says, Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And so these rulers over these different groups of people, they would have a shofar, no doubt, to get their attention, to rally the troops, um, to get them in order. And they would have their own, perhaps, a distinct sound that they would use. And in Numbers chapter 31, verse 14, there's another spot where it says, Moses was angry with the officers of the army, with the captains over thousands and captains over hundreds. So even the armies, you know, they had uh, captains over these different uh, denominations of people, and certainly they have to get their attention and a shofar. So they would take these 300 shofars. You know, if you're like me, as I read passages like this, don't be afraid to ask the questions because a lot of times you'll find answers if you dig a little further. It's like, you know, my first thought was, where did they get the shofar? Where did they get the trumpets? You know, it's not like you can go down to Atlas Music or someplace to buy trumpets. You know, where are they going to find these shofars? That many. You know, they, they had to have um, all these men who aren't going to the battle now they're willing to offer their shofar for these guys because the, 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 they're, they're going for a specific goal and they're more than happy to give up their, their shofar because guess what? They don't have to go to battle. They can go back into their tent and they can watch Fox News. And so, um, and I'm only kidding. Hopefully none of you are laughing. That really wasn't funny. So anyway, can you imagine these men, this, these 300 men? At this point, I would be like perhaps feeling pretty fearful, you know, <laughs> as God is winnowing this, uh, this uh, army. The, more, the smaller it gets, the smaller it gets. You can imagine the other guys, uh, they're going, man, this is getting really ridiculous. But you know what? God had given them that faith. So verse 9, it happened on the same night that the Lord said to them, Arise and go down to the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. And there are three times before this before this chapter that we're looking at, that God told Gideon that he would be victorious over the Midianites. 
He, and you can just write these down. It's in Judges uh, chapter 6, just a couple of chapter, a chapter before this, in verse 14, uh, chapter 6, verse 16, and then in chapter 7, verse 7, which we just read just a few moments ago. And so God told him that he was going to be victorious. And, 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 and Gideon evidently needed that, uh, that affirmation, that reaffirming voice from God, because again, none of us are spiritual giants. We may think that we're something, but sometimes God allows things in our life when we, we realize that, you know, I, I'm really not what I thought I was. I'm really not as uh, faithful as I thought I would be. I never thought I'd be tempted in this situation like I'm being tempted. See, we don't know our hearts, but God, He knows our hearts. And God also, in addition to uh, telling him three different times that he would be victorious, God also gave him three distinct signs to, to, to back up what God had said. In fact, a lot, of, a lot of times signs are given to back up what God has said. And we see that in uh, Judges 6, uh, verse 19, where, um, you know, the fire from the rock, when the angel of the Lord came, that was one sign. Uh, the wet fleece, we see that, that was another sign. And then the dry fleece in the very next uh, iteration of that, we see that all in chapter 6, three times. And notice that God, in verse 19, He would have given them victory if they had done nothing more than to just go down right at that moment. But notice what happens. Verse 10, and I love this about the Lord. He says, <laughs> let's read verse 9 again. And it happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. At that point, the army of Israel could have gone forth to, down to the camp and taken care of business, and God would have given them a wonderful victory. But again, notice how God is working in the life of not only Gideon, but um, mainly Gideon right now, and probably those other guys too. But he says in verse 10, But if you are afraid to go down, now God doesn't waste his words, so God knows that Gideon is probably a little apprehensive, a little fearful. He says, But if you are afraid, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men, who were in the camp. Now you have to kind of picture this in your mind. This is at night and having just a couple of guys sneak down into a camp of a well-established army is not going to be that big of a deal because they're not going to make any noise. It's going to be in the, under the, uh, the guise of twilight. So they're going to be unnoticed. And so, you know, it's very dark and I, and I am sure that uh, God made that night to be very dark. He probably had the moon uh, covered with cloud cover so that there'd be no chance of any light uh, coming through at that time. And, um, but notice in verse 10 there how gracious the Lord is and, and, and that He knows our frame. What does it say in Psalm 103? This is one of my favorite verses. It's in uh, verse 13 and 14. It says, As a father pities his children... So the Father, so Jehovah pities those who fear Him. Notice, for He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He remembers our frame. He knows that we are dust. And I love that about the Lord. And because He's not surprised. He made us. He knows exactly what we're made of. He knows what we're not made of. And, um, and, so, and also in Isaiah 42, we mentioned this earlier, uh, 42 verse 3 in Isaiah. It says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax... He will not quench. God is not going to take your faith and, and shipwreck it 
because of something that you're doing or not doing. He's going he's gonna to breathe life. He's going to encourage it. It's so unlike the world. The world is saying, well, if you don't have the skills right now, we don't need you. We can't take you. I need somebody who can give me the, the, the results now. I don't need somebody who's, who's still learning on the job. And God is all about learning on the job. It's the process that matters, not so much what happens at the end. God is more concerned about the process of what it takes than the end result. You know, you've heard that phrase, the ends do not justify the means. God is more interested in the journey, in the relationship, in the, in the nuts and bolts, in the grind of everyday life. He's more interested in that, knowing where it's going to take you, more so than just the result itself. Because he could just get you there if he wanted to. But it's again, it's the, it's the sanctification, right? What does it say in 1 Thessalonians 4.13? This is the will of God, even your sanctification. Step by step, little by little, here a little, there a little. That's the way it works. So verse 12, it says, Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And this is the first time in the scripture that we see camels actually uh, being included in warfare because normally they're not, they're not that kind of animal. You certainly see horses, but this is the first time in the scripture where we see um, that camels were actually part of this whole thing because they certainly are tall and lanky and they can move if they really need to. Um, so, and when Gideon, verse 13, had come, there was a man. So they come down into the valley, he and his companion there, and there was a man telling a dream to his companion. And this was the dream. He said to this other man, and again, you can, you can just picture a tent. If you've ever been camping and your mom and dad are in the tent and they're whispering something about you and you're a little kid, you get outside the tent and you're listening and, and you're hearing what, they're, you know, what your birthday present's going to be. Well, this is the kind of same thing. Gideon and his, uh, his, 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 his companion there, they're listening to a conversation and it just happens to be at the right time is there any coincidence here? Is there any, uh, there's no coincidence. Everything is a God incidence, meaning that even, the fa even how long it took them to come down the hill there to get to where the camp was, God was even involved in how long it took them, and he waited, and these guys are having a conversation, and isn't it wonderful how God works like that? You know how great that is. So he gets there, and the guy says, I've had a dream. To my surprise, and here's his dream, a loaf of barley bread, which is, which is you can tell that a barley bread is something that poor people make, not with the real wheat, but with barley, which is a much less expensive of a grain. So this barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, and it came to a tent, struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. And, and again, they were just there at the right time. And again, the Lord knows our frame. He knows our frame. There's, there's sometimes we may need, um, um, sometimes we, uh, we need to uh, go through things and, um, you know, the Lord knows what he's doing. He's been through it himself. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, what did Paul say? I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, Jesus knew he knows all things, and there's not a thing that you can go through that he hasn't experienced in his life. Uh, that, that those 33 years that he was on the earth, he experienced pretty much everything like a normal human being would. 
And so there's nothing that, um, that you're going to go through that he hasn't already experienced. In fact, he's experienced things that no one will ever experience. He experienced not only the crucifixion, but he experienced uh, the separation, this, the separation from his father for a time on the cross and taking the sin of man on his shoulders. That's something that no one can ever do and no one ever has except for him. But notice in verse 14, then his companion answered and said, uh, this is the guy, the other guy in the tent who's hearing this guy's dream. He says, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon. Notice, it's all about Gideon from this guy's perspective. It's the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. And this is a dream that God allowed this pagan idolater to have. He allowed them to have it. Now, I want you to underline in verse 14 that phrase, sword of Gideon. Just underline it because we're going to see in verse 18 below and also in verse 20 something interesting that happens with that phrase because the enemy is thinking, oh no, it's the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, right? So underline that. Let's go on to verse 15. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, notice that he worshiped. He returned to the camp of Israel and he said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. And no doubt the Lord was instrumental in giving this man the dream and also the interpretation. He gave him the dream. He gave him the interpretation. And, you know, we see this kind of thing all throughout the Bible. We see it. We see it in Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. We also know that Joseph in Genesis, he interpreted the, but, the butler and the baker's dream when he was in prison. He went on to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, if you remember. And so this is no different. God has the ability, because he's God, he can do anything. Notice that um, once he heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation that he worshipped, and this is something that's so wonderful because when God gives a victory or when He reassures us in something that we're struggling with or feeling apprehensive about, and He really affirms it to us, and we now we know that there's no better response than, than to worship. In fact, Warren Wiersbe said this, he says, Before we can be successful warriors, we must be calm, sincere, we must become sincere worshipers. So, before we can be successful warriors, we must become sincere worshipers. And isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? In fact, Hebrews tells us again in verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. There's something about faith that God finds irresistible when He sees it operating in the heart of a believer uh, or His people. He loves it when we, when we step out in faith according to His will. Because remember, Gideon wasn't stepping out in just something that he thought was good. He was stepping out in, 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 in something that God had told him to do. God said, Gideon, this is what I want to do with your life. This is what I'm going to do. And you're not going to die. You're not going to die. This is what I'm going to do. And to me, that would be the most encouraging thing in the world. And so uh, faith is something that is very pleasing to God and something we need to um, exercise in our own life. You know, so often you can see behind me there's a plaque that says live by faith and not by sight. And I'm hoping as time goes on, I'm going to grow in that myself. And, and I know for the uh, almost two years now, we've been uh, here, um, you know, as a pastor now, after Jeff and Linda went down south, 
uh, that has certainly happened and is happening and is continuing to happen in my life. He's causing these things to happen because he, he doesn't want me to stay stagnant. And he doesn't want you to stay stagnant either. And walking by faith is something, it's like a muscle that's, uh, that's exercised. If you don't exercise that muscle, it begins to atrophy. And pretty soon it just gets weak. And, and then before long, you're, um, you can't use it anymore. <laughs> and God wants you to use that muscle and he wants you to be listening and then to follow him and to trust him. But notice what happens here. Then he divided, verse 16, the 300 men into three companies and he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers. So picture this, a trumpet in their hands, empty pitchers, and inside the, um, the pitchers are going to be torches inside the pictures, or pitchers. And he said to them, verse 17, Look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. And so there they are. Notice Gideon, this, this young man who used to be uh, winnowing wheat uh, in, his, uh, in the wine press for fear of the Midianites. Now he's saying, do as I do. And he now, now he's the example. And that's, that's something that the Lord rejoices over. And so, verse 18, When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, notice, underline this phrase, because this is different than what we looked at in verse 14 above. It says, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Do you see the difference? In verse 14, the enemies were saying, this, this can be nothing more than the sword of the Lord, of, or, or the sword of Gideon, I'm sorry. This could be nothing more than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. But notice when Gideon now says it, he doesn't put himself in that first place. He puts God first. And it's a subtle little thing, but there's something to that. Because now it's not all about Gideon and what he's going to do. He's saying, no, this is not about the sword of Gideon. This is the sword of the Lord and Gideon. <laughs> small small G. <laughs> Bigger case G for God, lowercase G. Just kind of put me in the footnote somewhere in the back in the addendum of the book. You know, he, he puts the Lord first. He puts the Lord first. And so, we're going to underline something else here in verse 20, but let's go on to verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him, they came to the outpost of the camp, and at the beginning of the middle watch... Uh, just as they had posted the watch, they blew the trumpets and they broke the pitchers that were in their hands. This middle watch is sometime between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. So this is a, one of the darkest parts of the evening. Uh, the first watch would be 6 p.m. to 10 p.m., a four-hour shift. The middle watch would be 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. The morning watch would be 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. And so here they are, right as things are, right as the guard is switching, in a sense, the, these men are coming back to their tents, and at that moment, they, they blow the trumpets, and they break the pitchers, and um, everything starts to break loose. And it's interesting. It says, Then the three companies, uh, which blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held their torches in their left hands, uh, which is, this is my left hand, and the trumpets with their right hands for blowing. And they had this shofar in each of their right hands blowing, and they had the torch in their left hand. And notice what they say. Underline this again. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. It's not about Gideon. It's not the sword of Gideon. It's the sword of the Lord in Gideon. Make sure that the Lord is first. We never want to touch the glory because God will not give His glory to anyone. He's very serious about His praise. And that's why He did this to begin with. He took 32,000 men and winnowed them down to 300. Why? So that God will get the glory. No one will be able to boast and say, 
Yeah, it's because we're all that. You know, we had the F-15s come in, threw down some, you know, threw down a couple bombs and some, you know, uh, some tear gas, and we went in and cleaned up with our M-16s and all of our high-tech gear. You know, we, we repelled out of the helicopters, the Apaches. None of that was going to happen. God was going to say, you guys are going to look like you're out there playing with your Tonka truck, and I'm going to do business, and, and, and I'm going to receive the glory for it. And one thing you have to understand, and what's so unique about this, this battle strategy, if you will, and see, God had this all set up, is that under normal circumstances, there would be maybe only one person in the front of an army with a trumpet, or maybe a couple people in the, in the, in the front of the army with trumpets, right? And so now you have 300 men surrounding this huge camp. They all break their pitchers. They all have their torches. They're all blowing. And for the natural mind at that time, the enemy is thinking there's at least a legion behind each of these trumpets. So they're thinking to themselves, because they can't see anything. It's pitch black dark. I'm sure the Lord had a nice cloud come right over the, the moon and just stop right there. And all of this happens. It's pitch black. They hear the crunching of, or they smashing. They see the light. They see the, they hear the sound, and they are terrified. Right at the moment when the guards are changing, they're probably thinking these guys. I don't even know if, if they knew who these guys were. All of them, and they're coming into the camp. Fear takes hold of them. God uses this again psychological warfare to. To, their, to the advantage of the Israelites. And instead of having to go in and kill the men, the men end up killing themselves. They get confused. They think that the enemy is already starting to infiltrate them. Uh, they're surrounded. They can't see. They're expecting that behind each of these one trumpets, there's probably thousands of guys behind. So if there's 300 guys, they're thinking probably 300,000 people are coming against them. And they're like, we are toast. We are done. And notice... <laughs> that the, the Lord used this wonderful battle strategy. and he, he used this kind of thing in the lives of Joshua, as we read when we were in the book of Joshua. And also, as we get into David's life in First and Second Samuel, we're going to see the exact same thing. God uses, he's got so many things at his disposal. After all, doesn't he know the mind of man? He knows all these things. And he knows what scares the daylights out of people in an army. And he uses that to his advantage, to, for his own purposes. But notice in verse 21, it says, And every man stood in his place all around the camp, the Midianites, that is, and the whole army ran, and they cried out, and they fled, because they're, they're thinking they're toast. So when the 300 men blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. So the men began to kill themselves, to kill each other, rather than um, trying to figure out who is this guy. You know, um, they just start. They, they, it was a, it was a, it was a panic. There was a lot of confusion, and the army fled to Beth Acacia toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Meholah by Tabith. And the men of Israel gathered together. Notice from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh, and they pursued the Midianites. So uh, the the Naphtali and Asher. If this is where the uh, the tribe of um, Manasseh is right immediately to the north would be Naphtali and Asher. And certainly to the south of the Midianites would be the Ephraimites or Ephraim. And they would actually get in on the battle too. And we'll see that here shortly. So then Gideon, verse 24, sent messengers throughout all the, the mountains of Ephraim saying, Come against the Midianites and seize from them the watering places as far as Beth Bara. Um, and, and the Jordan, Beth Bara, uh, it just hit me <laughs> literally right now. Do you remember when 
John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan. It says Bethbara was where he was, the place of the ford. And this would be a, a shallow area where the water was coming through, but it would be shallow enough and probably rocky enough for them to go across that area. So now uh, Gideon is telling the men of Ephraim uh, to their south border there to go out into the plain east of them down to the Jordan River and take possession and guard Bethbara, this this ford that would be an easy place for the enemy to retreat over into the mountains of Gilead and back over into the east. Uh, so they would um, get in on the action and help them um, uh, root out the enemy that way. And so verse 25, it says, and this is our end of our verse, and we'll stop here tonight. It says, They captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb. I guess the place where they killed him, they just named the rock after him. And, uh, and Zeeb they killed at the winepress of Zeeb. So wherever this winepress was, and they slayed him right there, uh, they named it after him. Probably the only thing good that happened in their life was something was named after them. Uh, but they pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. And what I think is kind of interesting, and this is just a side note, and then we'll, we'll, we'll pray, is that the names of these two gentlemen, Oreb, his name literally means raven. Raven. And Zeeb, his name means wolf. And what is interesting about these two men's, these two men's, their names. Well, if you think of them, they are Gentiles, um, or they are pagan idolaters and unclean. And if you think of what their names mean, Oreb means raven and Zeeb means wolf. And these are, Levitically speaking, these are unclean animals. These were animals that were uh, birds of, like a raven we know as a bird of prey. You'll see a raven eating something dead alongside the road. Uh, you won't see um, other birds do that. Uh, some birds, you know, that are clean, they're not uh, uh, carnivorous like a raven is. And certainly a wolf is a, a ravenous beast that will, uh, is carnivorous too. And uh, the wolf is an unclean animal as well. And you can read um, about those two animals, not that it really matters. But I just think it's interesting that both of these men's names are... Are, speak of an unclean animal. <laughs> and you can see that in Leviticus uh, 15 through 27. You can see um, those two names. And so we're going to stop there tonight because uh, there's a lot in this chapter and there's certainly a lot in the next chapter uh, to, to talk about. And so uh, let's pray. But I want to encourage you again. You know, the theme of tonight is really how God can use somebody insignificant somebody who is uh, struggling, somebody who is weak. And I think for all of us, we could probably say, you know what, that sounds like me. That sounds like me. You know, I don't always feel like I'm on top of the world. I don't always feel like I'm the man of the hour. I don't always feel like I got all the skills that can pay the bills. I don't always feel like I'm anything. And in fact, it's probably good that you don't because, you know, the world that we live in is so caught up on self-esteem you know, that you believe in yourself, you know, believe in yourself, you can do anything, just believe in yourself. And God is saying, um, maybe believe in me and think less of yourself and I can do a lot through you. Um, it's just the opposite of what the world thinks. And so my, my problem is not so much uh, what I think I can, you know, um, you know, being humble. My, my problem often is thinking that I can do something, that I can really do something for the kingdom of God. And it's, good, it's a good place to be. What does the Bible say? If, if we humble ourselves, 
he who humbles himself will be exalted, and he who exalts himself will be humbled. And that's just the way God works. And so I can either um, believe that and respond with my life in that regard, or I can be like the world and and act like I've got it all together when I really don't. And isn't there a wonderful freedom to be like Gideon, to just you know, not have airs about yourself, to not think of yourself as being something great? You know, I think Gideon would, would, would say, you know, I'm really not that. God made me who I am, and I don't have anything to boast in of myself. And perhaps you're feeling the same way tonight. And you know, it's okay. It's okay to be that way. It's a good place to be because the only way when you are humbled and you're down, the only place is up. But let God do that. Let God do that. And even when He lifts you up, He has a way of, of, of making you feel humble. And He, he has, a, has a way of bringing you sometimes down if, you're, if we think of ourselves as being something. But this is God's working, and this is what God does in the lives of His people. He did it in Gideon's life. He's doing it in my life, and He will do it in your life. But the main thing is that we, we exalt Jesus Christ, that we live for Him, and trust Him for everything we do, and step out in faith. Uh, but be led by the Lord when you do. You know, We don't want to just step out in faith just to step out in faith and do something presumptuous. We know that there is presumption, and we don't want to be guilty of that. But when the Lord starts putting something on your heart, and He's put it on your heart more than once, you've got nothing to lose but to step out and see what He does. And, you know, and, and, and if you make a mistake and it wasn't the right time, He'll show you, and He'll He'll do it in your life again, and then you'll step out again, and it'll be at the right time. But usually when God tells us to do something, it's not because He wants to wait until a year from now to do it. Most of the time, unless He specifically says in the promise that He says to you, you know, I'm going to do something in your life in three years. I'm going to accomplish this at this time. You know, if He gives you that specific specificity, wonderful. But most of the time when He says, I need you to do something, it's do it now, right? And So we have to be open to that. So let's pray. Father, we, we give you thanks for the example of Gideon, and we thank you for what you're doing in our lives, Lord. Tonight, we, we just want to rest in your arms. We want to rest in the, in the arms of our Father and to just trust you, Lord, for all, all the details of our life, God. And so would you just take the reins, Lord? Uh, if, we've, if we've grabbed the steering wheel, so to speak, and are, are driving ourselves, and, and we've gotten, we're self-willed, God, and we have things that we want to do, Lord, Get our hands off the wheel, Lord. Help us to, if you must, Lord, pry our fingers one at a time off the steering wheel and to trust you and to let you work and to watch you work and to rejoice in your work in and through our lives and in the lives of others. So, Lord, so uh, we thank you for this time and we just pray you bless each one of us. And, Lord, keep us healthy. And, Lord, as I, as I see our brother uh, Mauricio online, well, Father, we just, again, we want to lift him up to you and pray for your blessing upon his life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.